0: In seminary or in graduate school, to learn how to do what I have the great privilege of doing, you are instructed to deliver the three point sermon. I think any preacher worth her salt learns quickly, say within the first year, that it's the one point sermon that really delivers and makes an impact. And this morning, I would tell you, I intend to preach a sermon about Christian identity, about weird people in weird places, about opera, about Paul's hermeneutic on conversion, about West Coast hip hop, and about the collaboration of neuroscientific practice and spiritual discipline. So it's a nice way of saying buckle your seatbelt, hold on to your hats, or reach into your pocket and get out your phone and catch up on the news. If you are around this place over the course of the last few weeks, and especially last Sunday, Last Sunday, I really leaned into this idea at the end of my sermon that the work that we engage at St. John's, in particular as it relates to this wonderful campaign that we have to reconstruct by, but really about um, all that we do in this place, all the ministry and mission that we have in this place, the work isn't a to-do list that Christians... Inherit on the day of their baptism or on the day that their heart is strangely warmed or when we begin to open our eyes to the reality of God's love in the world. It's not a to-do list that this work that we have to do as a church, to do as individuals in making a love-spreading difference in our community and well beyond, it's not a to-do list. Rather, it comes from who we are. Like, The the work that we do, the things that we do emanate from our identity, from uh, the, the nature, the condition of, the orientation of our minds and our hearts in the world. The work of becoming a mature Christian, and this is for the most part, um, second half of life stuff, but it's not restricted to a chronology of sorts. The, the work of, of becoming a Christian in the world um, sits around this duality that we hear in the story itself narrated that is simplistically described as like the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven. And the arc that we take as people of faith, people seeking to embody the faith, people seeking to have a a mature understanding of the faith, is an arc that is directed toward this concept of the kingdom of heaven that we hear Jesus talking about all the time, but remains beautifully and wonderfully somewhat mystical and somewhat cosmic And we have this work as Christian people um, to, to engage one another across the aisle from pew to pew, perhaps from church to church or family to family, to draw one another out into this deeper understanding so that we might be unified in the work that we do. And in that unification, that we might embody God's identity in the world, and we know that we understand God's identity, at least in this place, to be love. I can tell you that when I was a little boy, um, my mother was intent upon drawing out her two sons, leading us into a place where we would be well-educated, have sharp minds and open hearts for the world that we would encounter. And one of the things that my mother did was to introduce us at a very early age to opera. Every summer during... uh, On Friday night or Saturday night, while my brother and I were in town, we would pack a a picnic dinner and a blanket, and we would go to those of you who know the city of Houston, we would go to Herman Park, where at Miller Outdoor Theater, once a week, they would perform an opera. It was usually absolutely blazing hot. Um, Crowded and somewhat chaotic. For the most part, my mother, along with her friends um, and other parents, would eat dinner, maybe enjoy a glass of wine, and listen to the opera, while behind them and behind the crowd, there was absolute, wonderful, blissful chaos, as my brother and I and all of our friends and all of the other kids ran around and slid down this grassy hill um, that was the backside of um, the seating area for Miller Outdoor Theater. My mother had a very specific approach and um, intentional advice to my brother and me. She said, look, boys, you don't have to like the opera, but I do expect you to appreciate it. It was this idea that we would be exposed to something different, something that might even be dissonant from the things that we typically did, like slide down the slide at playground or whack a ball off the tee at t-ball practice. We're seeing happy birthday to our friends at a birthday party. It was something that for my brother and me, me was relatively weird and strange. That leads us to this wonderful story that we have from the gospel this morning. It's a really interesting installment And it's a critical threshold or transitional moment in the story itself. There are some really important details um, that we miss when we read across it. But let's first look at the point of the story. The point of the story is about identity. Who do people say that the son of humanity is? Who do you say that I am? Who do they say that I am? What is it that brings you to an understanding about my identity? Jesus is asking. Now to be clear, we are meant to understand that this story itself is not simply about the hot ha- about the identity of Jesus. This isn't a story necessarily born in a high Christology, but rather a low Christology. What do I mean by that? If we have a sense of who Jesus is, and we have a sense of who the Father or the Creator is, then we begin to have a sense of who we are. It's this idea that those three components with the Holy Spirit in the middle of each of those triptychs are connected we have some sense in knowing jesus's identity that we are looking into a mirror and we know of our sacred identity now if you're around this place you know i talk about our identity all the time with great intention and perhaps i and There are other preachers and other theologians who are preaching and writing today who are making this same shift. You see, for the last 500 or so years, we've been attached to kind of the negative side of our identity in church, right? We get this sense of like, who are you as a human being? Well wretched man that i am paul says who will deliver me from this body of death what we've heard for the last 500 years in the protestant reformation is that we are sinful and broken characters in need of the saving grace of god and while that might absolutely be true it's not the side of the story that i list toward i list toward the very beginning of the story week in and week out In this place, I don't need you or anyone else, and you don't need me or anyone else to remind you that we are broken. Don't need that. I already know. I already experience it here in my heart. What do I need to know? I need to know what the beginning of the story narrates that I, that you and I, that we, all who came before us and all who will come after us, are made in the image of God, in the image of God who we know to be love, that love is inseparable from our identity, from who we are. That's what I want to remind you week in and week out, and by extension, what I want you to remind me of. This idea that we are beloved of God Here's the deal, though. Oftentimes, our norms, our context, needs to be upset and interrupted in a relatively dramatic way so that we might hear that message emphatically. And that's exactly what's happening in the gospel this morning that we miss, that we don't pick up on because we've just sort of lost the understanding of some of the details in the story. But let's recover them just for a moment for the sake of this disintegrated sermon. You have heard me say, if you've been around this church, you've heard me say that any time we hear the name of a particular geographic location when we're listening to the gospel itself like a light bulb should go on or an asterisk should appear next to that name it should cause us to raise our attention and our awareness to say like something's up here i may not exactly know what's up but something's up that should draw my attention that that should cause me to listen more carefully about what's going on. Now we've heard Peter in this gospel section say, like, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives this beautiful response well within the tradition, like solidly within the context from which they have grown up. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. These other names that echo are all throughout the tradition. But there is this dissonance that we miss as people in 2023 that's very important. The beginning of the story says that this happens in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is way, way, way on the other side of the tracks. We're meant to hear this as an absolute absurdity. Wait, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God, but this is happening in Jackson Hole, Wyoming? No, it's supposed to be happening in Washington D.C. or in on Manhattan Island. Something's not right here. The way that Jesus seeks to give us a deeper understanding of his our identity and of our identity is by disrupting the context that we normally sit well within. He is opening our minds and opening our hearts to a new possibility by doing what he's doing in a very peculiar place. Caesarea Philippi is um, a spring, so it's a source of fresh water in the northern section beyond Um, the Sea of Galilee. It's also a holy, a sacred site for the Roman god of Pan. Like, he's just, he's, he's doing what everyone expects him to be doing, but he's doing it in the exact wrong place. And by the way, he's doing it with the wrong people too. His disciples are, 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 are rabbinical school dropouts. They are not the interns for the high priests in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. You see, that's where it's all supposed to be starting. We, as people, seeking to embody the Christian faith, are being instructed, are being led out, are being educated by Jesus to liberate our minds and our hearts to the expansive work that God does all across creation in a wonderful cosmic and mystical way. I told you that my mom introduced my brother and me to opera when we were children. I told you that the thing that led her to do that was this idea that she would make her children more educated, more open, to have a more expansive look at the world and what art is and what art means to us i told you that she instructed us like you don't have to like it you just have to appreciate it i can also tell you that my mom's effort to grow the love of opera in the lives of her two sons was an absolute failure Though we might appreciate it, because it is important to, neither my brother nor I love the opera. But what I can also tell you, and I don't even think my mom knows this. I tried to call her yesterday afternoon, and she didn't pick up. <clears throat> Maybe that's good. I, what I can tell you is that my mom's favorite opera is an opera called Tremonitia. Maybe some of you know this work. And what I can tell you is that Tremonitia was the soundtrack to my childhood. (laughs) I was born in 1970 for as long as I can remember until I was 11 or 12 years old. We had like one of those pieces of furniture that was like a TV down here and a turntable up here. I think the uh, the like speaker screen had some like gold fabric. You know, it was it was an incredibly ostentatious piece of furniture. And every Saturday and Sunday afternoon, my mom would would put each record of Tremonitia onto the turntable and blast it in our house Saturday and Sunday afternoons. We were immersed in that particular opera. It is somewhat of a unique opera, maybe some of you know, written by Scott Joplin in 1910. It never hits the stage until um, he's long dead. It's born out of the, the plot itself is about a young, freed, black woman who is taught to read by a white woman who then rescues her community away from imposters, folks who would prey and predate upon the hearts of the people that exist in her community. The story itself is a mix of both liberation and lament of the experience of African Americans early in our country's history. Joplin writes it, with an eye toward old Afro-Negro spirituals and also the ragtime musical uh, tradition within the framework of, like, a German opera. (laughs) The closest it gets to the stage in his lifetime is a sort of dress rehearsal where he rents out a theater in Harlem and puts it on. It kind In 1915, so five years after he writes it, he finally sort of funds this dress rehearsal, and the reviews are like two thumbs down. One of the reviewers who has insight into Joplin's genius says, the Harlem crowd who listened to the opera were sophisticated enough to distance themselves from the folklore and folk music of their past but not sophisticated enough to re-embrace the beauty of their folklore and folk past. It is a wonderful piece of art that doesn't necessarily appeal to me. However, what I can tell you from, and this is sort of a moment of coming out of the closet to you to, in some degree, um, what I can tell you is I believe Tremonitia being the soundtrack to my childhood has led me toward this peculiar love of hip-hop music. I am somewhat self-conscious in driving around our small town in my truck With my windows up, knowing that you could pull up next to me at any moment and hear like the thumping of the bass (laughs) happening in my silver Toyota pickup truck. I would also tell you that if I have to list in one direction or another direction, I list in the direction of West Coast hip hop rather than East Coast hip hop. And one of my favorite bands that is one of the progenitors of West Coast hip-hop is a band called Cypress Hill. Anybody know Cypress Hill? A few. I love it. In Cypress Hill is um, comes out of Southgate, Los Angeles, so kind of like a mix between, like, um, South Central L.A. and East L.A. It's this beautiful mix of, like, um, solid like black culture ghetto with two of the guys who early were early formers. One who stays were brothers born in Cuba. So there's this wonderful Latin X mix. It's like bilingual, tri-cultural, beautiful poetics that echoes the beats that we hear in the psalter this morning. It is a glorious work of art one of their songs is called superstar and they they released somewhat geniusly released two versions of this song superstar in 2000 one is called rock superstar rock superstar which was broadcast on the rock channels that i listened to as i drove around los angeles or austin before that um And then the other version is called Rap Superstar, which is targeted more to the, like, sort of bluesy, Motown, African-American, Latinx, hip-hop crowd. So they produced this single song with with just a subtle change in it so that it would expand across the market. The lines, the the opening lines of the song are beautiful, so you want to be a rock superstar. Live, wait, oh gosh, it's going to come back to me. So you want to be a rock superstar, live large, big house, five cars, you're in charge. Growing up in the world, don't trust nobody. Got to look over your shoulder constantly. I remember the days when I was a young kid growing up, looking in the mirror, dreaming about blowing up. So we listen to those beautiful lyrics and we hear narrated within that story from the context that we sit in. We hear like, yeah, yeah, those are the aspirations of people who want to be rock stars or rap stars. That's the life they lead, right? But do we hear that those are the lyrics to the first half of life in our culture, too. The lyrics simply narrate the experience of wanting to be a successful, high-achieving individual in our culture, one who amasses both wealth and power, because that is the trajectory of the first half of life. You see, These messages, these messages about the kingdom of the world over and against the kingdom of heaven come from strange places sometimes. And do we hear the dissonance or the resonance across cultures? Let me be more clear in what I am meaning to say. There is this hermeneutic that we've heard in Paul's epistle this morning about the idea that we would engage in transformation, that we, those of us who are committed to the embodied life, to the life that Jesus teaches us about, that we would engage in a transformation of life so that we might be perfectly fit to live in the kingdom of heaven, which is right here and right now, today. And Paul narrates that the first move in this transformation is through the renewal of our minds, through the opening of our minds. Now, if you are a reader of neuroscience as of late, you would have a sense that many people who have been um, intimately and aggressively involved in neuroscientific research these days have, have, um, are, are doing this kind of wonderful thing where there's like one foot solidly over here in the hard science around what happens in the brain. And then also recognizing that over here on this side, there's one foot that's solidly sitting in this idea of of spiritual practice where our minds can become more open or more intentive or more liberated um, in a way and that we might live a a more integrated or a more whole life. This is the trajectory that Jesus is leading us toward when he asks his identity, when he asks his disciples to declare his identity in this utterly peculiar place. Like, remember, it happens in Harlem, not on Wall Street, where it's supposed to happen. There's this idea that we, as people who embody the faith, need to be open enough so that we can experience God's interruptions from every and all directions and then he follows up this idea that we would be transformed through the renewing of our minds and that we would experience as he's his words though we are many we are one body in Christ the work that we do in transforming our minds is the real work of real conversion not like 1970 american conversion took my knee forehead to the bed pray but the but the the root of that word conversare a moment where we all see each other beautiful and equal and different but all together it is a cosmic Mystical and also practical work. I warned you. <laughs> Two more points <laughs> to the fifteen point sermon. <clears throat> if you are, if, if we want to try to do this. Let me say it in a different way. If we want to try to be this, there are some practices that we can pick up. If you are a reader of neuroscience like I am, you know that there's been a ton of work done in the last 15 years around trauma. Like beautiful work around trauma. And I mean the full range of trauma for those who have been subjected to the absolute horrors of war to those who were conditioned by um, angry abusive or neglectful parents Um, the full range of trauma there's tons of research to it i believe as a pastor i can tell you i believe the biggest biggest impediment to us having this experience of transformation is not being able to heal our trauma it's a very real thing. And what you have also heard um, described, and, and honestly, I'll, I'll be absolutely honest about this, maybe overheard, not just heard, but maybe overheard, is this concept of triggers. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So this idea that there are certain things that can happen that can trigger our trauma. Um, they're very real things. and gosh, I'm grateful that we know so much more about that triggers in particular and trauma in particular than we knew 50 years ago. It's going to help us. It's going to help us grow and heal. What neuroscientists are also discovering as of late, and there's a kind of new term that's being tossed around for it, like if triggers are sort of the shadow side of our social emotional development, there's a bright side too. And the bright side happens in what neuroscientists are calling glimmers. What I would say is that we like get these glimpses into the kingdom of heaven, into this life where we find ourselves whole and integrated, that we have these experiences. You know, maybe it's watching the sun go down behind the Tetons and our hearts are warm and open. It could be trout rising on a hatch on the river on a day when you are so uh, utterly tune. It could be on that first birthday of your grandchild who takes their hand and pushes it into the icing and then shoves it In their mouth, it could be at the wedding of your beloved daughter or that moment in time where when family is visiting and it's just been utterly chaotic for 10 days and you're kind of ready for them to go home. But everybody stacks in under the aspen trees for that photograph that you are likely to put on your Christmas card. There are these glimmers these burning bushes that are happening all around us. And we can train our brains to recognize them. And I believe in that transformation of our minds that happens in that moment, we will find ourselves more fully integrated. That is the first how-to practice. The second how-to practice that I would give you in this work of becoming is something that I've been doing for about about nine weeks now. I've been doing it with my older brother, um, who, you know, like, you just have so much in common with your siblings if you have one, and there's so much history there, and there's so much unspoken stuff, and we are talking on the phone. We talk frequently, probably like maybe too frequently. <laughs> honestly five seven times a week sometimes but we're close and and I told him the other day I was like you know like I'm just he was like how you doing I was like I'm kind of tired it's been a really busy sun summer and like we're making great progress and everything but i am just um I'm, I'm kind of tired but I feel really good about where I am and and what we're doing and our family and my work and everything and I said you know I what I have this kind of idea that I'm going to execute on. Um, over the course of the next few weeks. And he was like, oh, what's that? I was like, I'm going to throw away the to-do list. I'm going to crumple up the to-do list and throw it in the wastebasket. And every morning, I'm going to write myself a to-be list. Because I believe at the center of my heart that the work that I was built for, the good, loving work that I, that we are designed for, has this order to it. It doesn't flow from a list of things we should do. It flows from this list of who I aspire to be. And so each morning, for like the last nine weeks, the sunrise greets me with this practice where I can write down in the notes on my phone, like today, I want to be a kind husband. I want to be a patient and attentive father. I want to be a creative and listening colleague. I want to be a productive and unifying citizen. I want to be funny. Little, A little adaptation, a slight adaptation of our practice We can reorder us in such a way that our view, which can get pretty fixed, is cracked open. And you and I can inherit these glimmers, these glimpses of the kingdom of heaven at work about us. And those glimpses those glimmers can draw us toward the kingdom of heaven which means we are also being drawn toward one another together in a unifying moment in time and man we could use a little more unity amen invite the congregation to stand, and together let us affirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of